It's the Tuesday Expert Interview Edition. We'll talk with the author of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. It's Joe Sheehan, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 11th. It's show number 15 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with Joe Sheehan about spring training stats, Derek Jeter, the continuing growth of advanced statistics, PEDs and the union, free agent signings, contract extension, and his studs and duds for 2014. We'll also have these commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our metric minute... Analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about base performance value for pitchers. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon talks about Dodgers second base prospect Alex Guerrero. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Irvin Santana is a Blue Jay. Or an Oriole? Maybe a twin? We gotta talk some baseball. On the weekend, news reports said free agent starter Irvin Santana had an agreement in place with the Toronto Blue Jays on a one-year deal, and that if the Orioles didn't step up to top that offer before 5 o'clock Eastern time on Saturday, then Irvin Santana would sign with Toronto. 5 p.m. Saturday came and went, and Irvin Santana hadn't signed anywhere. In fact, as I speak to you now, Irvin Santana is still a free agent, and now apparently the Twins are sniffing around as well. However, and whenever this turns out, Santana will probably end up having used his free agent status and a decent season in 2013 to parlay a $14.1 million qualifying offer from the Royals into less. It seems Santana and his advisors overestimated how attractive he is to teams, especially since he comes with the added cost of a lost draft pick and the budget allotment that goes with it. We'll be talking about the changed free agent landscape with Joe Sheehan in just a minute. But in the meantime, keep this in mind. There might be a lesson in the Santana saga for fantasy players, especially when trading time rolls around. Don't overvalue your assets, and don't wait too long to make a deal. No more waiting for us to get the show rolling with the author of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and a frequent contributor to Sports Illustrated, also a past guest here on the show, it's Joe Sheehan. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick, good to talk to you again. Joe, before we get started talking about players in particular and some of your columns that you've written in your newsletter, what's the best way to look at spring training stats, especially as far as trying to predict what's going to go on in the regular season? Not at all. Uh, Spring training stats are compiled. Fundamentally, statistics are valuable because they're a side effect of trying to win baseball games. And in spring training, the goal isn't really to win baseball games. It's to get ready for the season. It's to work on a new pitch, new hitting mechanics. Once you divorce the, hey, we want to try to win these games from the stats, 
the stats lose a lot of their meaning. You also have the problem of varying levels of competition, varying motivations. There are just so many issues with spring training statistics as a predictor that I choose to ignore them. I want to, if I'm looking at anything from spring training, it's in the last couple of weeks I want to look at roles, I want to look at lineups to see the context in which a player is playing and how a pitcher is being used. But the actual statistics are to be ignored. They will lead you astray more often than not. It was a couple of years back that Stats Inc., BIS, one of them, came up with the number that if a player slugged a certain amount over their previous career slugging, that was an, that was an indicator. The problem with that, of course, is, is the state of Arizona. Uh, slugging percentages tend to be high in the Cactus League. As you know, we've, you've, Patrick, you've been out to spring training, you've been sure. out to Arizona Fall League because the air's thin, because... Uh, you know, they've got altitude issues in some cases. So you're going to see players who simply by dint of playing in the Cactus League are going to have higher slugging percentages. So across the board, I ignore spring training stats. And sure, you'll have a situation every year where somebody will have a big spring and go on to have a big season. But systematically, you, you have to ignore them. They're just not accumulated in games where teams are trying to win. On the other hand, I've heard the argument that the teams aren't trying to win, but there's a lot of guys trying to get jobs. And... Uh, I don't think that argument holds because a lot of the action takes place against guys that know their jobs are secure. You've got pitchers working on fourth pitches or trying to, you know, tailor or fine tune pitches and they don't care if they get hit too much. And on the other hand, you've got hitters, same thing. They're trying to work on hitting the slider away. And if they strike out, okay, well, didn't work. I got to keep working on it. They're not trying to win, as you said. And I, I agree with you. I think that colors the whole thing. What about, uh, uh, situational things like using spring training stats? You mentioned towards the end of the year, you do want to have a look and see who's going to be batting cleanup in situations where that's maybe a, an iffy situation or maybe uh, who's going to be the last man out of the bullpen before the closer, those kind of things? Yeah, and once we get down to the last couple of weeks, 10 days, where teams now are down to maybe 30, 32 guys on their roster, they're not constantly running guys in and out, I do want to see how a manager is lining up his bullpen. I mean, typically early in spring training, the closer will pitch you know, the fourth inning because he's a veteran and he gets to pitch the fourth inning, do his running, and go home. I think you start to see the usage patterns line up a little bit more later in, the, in spring training, and even those, just even that last week before spring training where, okay, you know, this is going to be a, this is this is how I want to line up my bullpen. This guy pitching the seventh, this guy pitching the eighth, this guy pitching the ninth. Or even more important, I want to look at lineup context. You know, where is you know if I have a player who I'm not sure you know what his run in RBI counts might be, but he's you know key to my strategy. I'd like to see is he batting second in a good lineup versus batting sixth. So lineups matter, usage patterns matter. One other thing to look at, particularly with new managers, we've got Matt Williams and a number of other guys this year, is how often these teams run. And again, this is later in spring training. You know, if, if managers who are not sure, are they going to be active managers or passive managers? Are they running with their guys a lot? I mean, stolen bases obviously being such a key part in a lot of formats. I want to see if, if managers are showing a willingness to give the green light to a lot of guys. Kind of ironic, isn't it, Joe, that you'll see a closer in a non-closer situation, which uh, people like you and I say they should be doing all year based on leverage rather than save situations, and they only do it in spring training. Uh, uh, Joe, Derek Jeter has announced his retirement. You might have heard that on the news uh, over there in New York. And I know you've had some thoughts about his career and his importance in recent baseball history. So give me the big picture, Joe, your view of Jeter's career, and maybe to use a somewhat overworked term we've been hearing a lot, Derek Jeter's legacy. Derek Jeter is one of the greatest baseball players ever. He'll be a first ballot Hall of Famer. All of these things will be deserving. Um, he, and beyond what he was on a, on a baseball field, 
he was a critical part of you know the most recent dynasty in Major League Baseball, the Yankees team that won four times in five, or four World Series in five years. Derek Jeter being a part of shortstop on five World Series championship teams. That makes him a critical part of baseball history over and above his own skill set. I mean, we get a lot of arguments uh, about you know what type of player he was defensively, but you, you separate that out from like a, there's a sabermetric argument that that you make there. But when you just look at Derek Jeter as somebody with more than 3,000 hits, a shortstop on five championship teams, you know, depending on where you want to talk about uh, timeline adjustment or how you rate his defense or how you consider players like Alex Rodriguez and Ernie Banks who split their careers between shortstop and another position, Derek Jeter is somewhere between the third and eighth best shortstop in baseball history. I'd say probably within, you know, somewhere between 80 and 110 overall in baseball history. Just a truly great player. He wasn't, and, and uh, I think what what a lot of people, even non-Yankee fans, like about when they look at his career is, to use a, a non-baseball, non-statistical term, he had a lot of class and he was a good ball player. You know, everybody remembers the flip play when he, when he got uh, Giambi at the plate in that playoff game, a critical situation, and you look at the situation, even now if you see a replay of it, the only question that comes into your mind is, what the hell was he doing there? You know, he's, it, it, it makes no sense. And then, it, you know what it reminds me of? I'm a Canadian guy. I've been watching hockey all my life. He reminded me in that situation of Wayne Gretzky, who was always where the puck was going to be rather than chasing after after it got there. Yeah, I mean, this is the differentiating between evaluating Jeter as a baseball player versus evaluating his defensive performance. Derek Jeter was a very good baseball player, as demonstrated on a play like that or on any number of others throughout his career who happened to be a poor defensive shortstop because there were certain basic skills that he wasn't very good at. He didn't have a lot of lateral range on ground balls. So that affects his value. But there's no question that even if Derek Jeter, if you rate him as a poor defensive shortstop, he's still a great baseball player. And I think drawing the line there, and maybe that's convenient, maybe that's not going to work for everybody, but I think drawing the line between baseball player and defender is kind of how I, how I understand Derek Jeter's greatness. I was listening to Major League Network Radio on XM the other day, and I heard one of the hosts, and I, I don't think I remember who it was, but he said Jeter in his peak years, and I'm quoting, was as good defensively as any shortstop in the game. Now, this seems like an attempt by the Major League Baseball media, and especially MLB Network Radio has a tie to the, to the business end of the game, but what about this tendency of sports media figures to mythologize players in this way, especially as they come to the ends of their careers and we start looking back at them and maybe overstate some of their attributes a little bit? Yeah, obviously that's an overstatement for Jeter. I think that you know, when, you, when you start looking into, okay, <clears throat> what do the metrics say? All of them uniformly tell you he was a bad defender, and it's just a matter of to what degree of bad defender we're talking about. Jeter was just, I mean, gold glove voting. Jeter actually underlines the flaws in gold glove voting. Yes. But you talk about the mytho- uh, mythologization of, of players. and See, for me, I... I it, I guess this gets to how we consume sports information or consume sports. I, my love is the games, whether and this goes for all sports. I, I like the games. I like watching great athletes do great things on the field, and and furthermore, understanding you know the game and, and getting into not just in baseball but in basketball, football, some of the the ways in which you've come to understand those games. I personally tune a lot of the other stuff out. Um, I don't have a lot of interest in great athletes as people because that's not the thing that. First of all, I don't mythologize them as people. I think that they're largely, you know, some are good, some are bad, the same way the rest of us are, some are good or some are bad. Um, so 
a lot of the stuff that happens at the end of a player's career, we talk about, you know, oh, you know, he was this, he was that, he was something else. I tend to tune that out the same way I tune a lot of the other stuff out. There are players for whom that's different. Um, Don Mattingly was, you know, my favorite player growing up at the end of his career was a, you know, emotional time for me. Mariano Rivera was uh, somebody who I very much enjoyed watching, and I very much was invested in last year. Uh, but by and large, you know, a lot of the stuff that comes out, because a lot of them are, everything's been filtered through the media for 20 years now. You know, Derek Jeter, a lot of things that are being written now, if you go back, you can say, well, what about this? What, we could pick it apart. We could have long discussions about it. Personally, I prefer to focus on the fact that he was a great player on the field and kind of leave the rest to other people. Do you follow the uh, advanced statistics in those other sports? Uh, basketball certainly had a revolution in that regard. Football's got some really interesting new metrics. Even uh, hockey, they've developed some uh, very interesting metrics about player performance and team situational performance. Do you follow those kind of statistical advances in those other sports to the same extent that you follow them in baseball? I would say, particularly in basketball, um, we started basketball perspectives about God was it six years ago now. Um, I had a chance to work with some really, really bright guys: uh, Kevin Pelton, Bradford Doolittle, John Gasway. Those guys have all gone on to work for ESPN, um, and I just I love the the stuff that's being done in basketball now, particularly with beyond statistics themselves, things like the Sport View cameras that they, they they're showing the movements of every player on the court and what the optimal movement should be. There's a real revolution happening within basketball and there seems to be less resistance to it than we had in baseball i mean this is a 40-year fight in baseball it seems like basketball has come in about a five to ten year period and it's really been driven more in the game all of the change all of the 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 changes in basketball excuse me in baseball have been externally and were accepted eventually accepted internally it seems like in basketball it was teams themselves kind of driving the discussion uh a little bit more than we had in baseball so you know obviously you know football hockey as well but i think what's happened in basketball over the last decade is absolutely fascinating. It really is, and I think one of the things that's really interesting about it, you hit the nail on the head by saying so much of it is being generated internally. Of course, you have Dallas, which has a computer guy as the owner, who obviously sees a lot of advantages in data analysis that maybe his fellow owners would have been slower to adopt, but he turned it into winning more basketball games than his team probably had a right to, just looking at the rosters, and Another thing that's interesting and kind of too bad about that aspect of it is a lot of the NBA statistical developments are proprietary to the teams. They keep them very close to their vests, and they're not really willing to talk about them. So we, in a lot of ways, don't even know what some of the most interesting aspects of advanced baseball, basketball sorry, metrics are. Yeah, that stuff's leaking out. You have some things like the Sloan Conference that you know, some of that information gets out there. But yeah, a lot more of it is, is internal and proprietary. It will be interesting to see what happens now with baseball's new technology. They announced there at the Sloan Conference last week that they were going to be able to do a lot more measuring. They're going to roll it out in three ballparks this year and hopefully have all 30 to go on opening day 2015. You know, with pitch FX, they made a lot of that uh, information public. Will they continue to do so, or will there be will there be a push? to kind of keep that data in-house so the teams can use it. Now, you know, even now, I mean, we're seeing, we know teams are doing things with, with defensive metrics, with batted ball data, with, you know, uh, all kinds of information that they have internally that we don't have. They're doing things internally to measure player performance that we don't have access to. We're starting to see that level of separation between external and internal. I think this going to be an interesting thing that happens over the next 10 to 15 years. How much of the data revolution is accessible by the fans and how much of it will just become proprietary. 
And of course, you have to hope that it doesn't stay proprietary, not just because it's in our interest, because we like to look at it, but uh, it seems like throughout history, anytime you make information open, it moves forward more quickly than if you keep it to yourself and uh, sequester it, because uh, then nobody can test your theories or back check them or so forth. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, last year we saw... A fairly sudden and unexpected drop in stolen bases and a fairly sudden, not quite as uh, extreme growth in power output, all of which had some pretty uh, important effects on fantasy baseball. So have you seen anything trend-wise in baseball in this coming year that you think might have an effect on how we value players, how we uh, manage our rosters in fantasy baseball? I think batting average is going to continue to be a challenge. Um, As we see more and more teams use, and not even just the word shift, the word shift kind of understates what teams are doing defensively. Where You're just taking the seven fielders you have and trying to put them in the optimal position to field a batted ball. And, you know, we're, we've seen batting average on balls in play continue to drop. I think that from a hitting standpoint, it's going to continue to reward players who can get the ball out of the yard, who can kind of take, you know, the, the, the best thing you can do to beat the shift is hit the ball over the fence. So kind of going a little bit more towards this three true outcomes uh, effect where, you know, if you put the ball in play, defenses are just getting more and more efficient about turning that into out. So you've got to find other, way to score, other ways to score runs. So, you know, hitters who can... Uh, you might look at it and say, I, I, you know, well, I'm not sure what type of hitters uh, are going to be affected by this. I think that you know, power probably becomes more important. Guys who can drive the ball, get the ball over a shift, hit the ball over the outfield is probably have more value. There's a notion that players who aren't dead pull hitters might have an advantage. Players who tend to hit, go spray the ball, go line to line, may have an advantage because they can't really be shifted against. Right. So that's something to watch for. But I think the effects of of highly efficient defense on the game mechanics are really going to be interesting to watch. The other thing is the stolen bases. Um, it feels to me like we've simply pitchers, catchers, between mechanics and velocity have just gotten so good at cutting down the running game that the, the trade-offs have uh, become very difficult. So you wonder if stolen bases are not just going to become more concentrated in certain players. So you'll have your guys you can steal at a 70-80% clip, and then everybody else just doesn't run, which you know it might be highly efficient. I don't know how exciting a game that is. So, yeah, I mean, the, the game always evolves. And, you know, between you know, some of the stuff we've talked about in data, data capture and, and technology and figuring out okay, we have all this information, how do we use it? That's affecting both the real game and our game. Something that changes every year, Joe, is players moving to new teams, especially through free agency, less commonly through trade. Which player moves so far this offseason do you think are the most important, both for real baseball and pennant races, as well as for fantasy purposes? Well, to, to me, the biggest moves of the winter were the, what the Rangers did, uh, trading for Prince Fielder and signing Shin Su Chu. That, that was a team that, despite there being in a hitter's park and kind of that shaped the perception of the team, they really become a pitching and defense team over the last couple of years, and they struggled to score runs. You know, losing Hamilton, they never really replaced his production last year. Mitch Moreland didn't develop. They futzed around with Jerks and Profar until he just wasn't a very good player last year. By adding two high OBP left-handed hitters, one of whom is going to shoot it for tremendous power in that ballpark. Not only do they, I mean, they did, I think that they're going to position themselves as the, the favorites in the AL West. 
And I should note that they've had such pitching injuries in the last couple of months that there's some question about whether they are the favorite, but I still think they'll win the division. And, of course, I think both of those players are going to be fantasy studs this year, playing in that good hitter's park and having the, the, the skill sets that they have. I think the Rangers' moves this winter were the biggest things that any team did. As talking about players changing uh, places, you were not a huge fan of the Orioles dipping into the free agent market, uh, spending some of that money to sign Nelson Cruz and Nubaldo Jimenez, and it seems like these were filled some holes for the Orioles, but you're not a fan. How come? I'm not a big fan of Jimenez. Uh, Jimenez kind of pretty much established himself as a number four starter, Then he had 20-odd good starts at the end of last year. Yes, the velocity ticked up. But if you look at it, two things were happening. One, he was facing, particularly in the second half, an incredibly weak slate of opponents. And even the teams that ranked well statistically, he was facing them when they like, faced the Blue Jays toward the end of the year. Well, the Blue Jays were just emaciated, destroyed by injuries. He faced the Twins after Maurer and Morneau were gone. I mean, these were just bad lineups. Um, he took advantage of it. And if you look at that, I think the bad lineups contributed to one particular statistic. He only gave up one home run in the last 103 fly balls that he allowed. And that's an unsustainable pace. So I look at Jimenez as a pitcher who's going to regress to being, you know, maybe a number three. And, you know, he's not going to move the needle all that much. I mean, you know, he might be a three-win pitcher, and that doesn't hurt the Orioles. But the Orioles have a staff full of these number three, number four, number five guys, and Norris and Miguel Gonzalez. They needed a pitcher who's a number one, and that guy just wasn't really out there. So I don't hate the signing. Um, I think that they gave up a low enough draft pick that, you know, it's not going to kill them. And certainly four and 50 for a number three slash number four starter is the going rate. I just don't think it's going to have the impact. And I would say the same for Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz is basically a two-win player, you know, and because they had such a such a hole in left field and DH. I think this actually, maybe they get a little more bump than most teams would. I mean, they were hoping you know, when Ryan will get healthy or Henry Arrudia can hit. I think using Cruz to fill that in, and when you consider that by signing Cruz after Jimenez, it only cost them their second round draft pick. You know, the Cruz signing makes a little more sense for them, but I do think we're talking about moves that take them from maybe 81 to 85 wins in a division that's going to take 92 just because they're still probably six or seven games worse than the Red Sox and Rays. And that's not even considering you know, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, whoever finishes second in the Central, the Reds, the, the Rangers, the A's. I just don't think this may be, these moves make them a playoff team. Joe, you mentioned that uh, by signing the second free agent in the same period that the uh, Orioles have actually benefited themselves by not losing an extra draft pick. And you've, you've written entire newsletters about the effects of the new regime in that regard when you sign free agents under certain circumstances, you do or you don't lose draft picks as compensation. Could you just briefly describe what you think has gone on as teams are realizing the important effects of making their signings correspond with maximum efficiency as far as retaining draft picks? Right. Um, two years ago, when they changed the CBA, they made a number of changes all at once that have led to these unintended consequences of making draft picks relative, the draft pick penalty incredibly high. Now, picks aren't just picks, they're also tied to how much you can spend in the draft. So, if a team forfeits its first round draft pick, which, of course, it used to do under the old CBA, it's also now forfeiting anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of its draft budget. So it, may, it blows a huge hole in your draft, whereas previously you could say, okay, we'll sacrifice the draft pick, but we'll make it up by signing guys, hard to sign guys later on. You no longer have that option. So draft picks now are much more valuable than they were. So the penalty for signing a player is much higher. It's also more clearly a penalty. 
it used to be that if you signed a player, your draft pick went to the team that he came from. That doesn't happen anymore. That draft pick just disappears. The team that gave up the free agent gets a compensatory pick uh, after the first round. So really, we're not talking about a compensation system anymore. We're talking about a penalty system that dramatically hurts teams that want to sign free agents. All of this means that if you're a team in the middle of the pack who might benefit from adding a two-win player like Irvin Santana or Stephen Drew or Kendris Morales, you're not just you're making a decision that will hurt you a lot more than it used to. So the penalty for signing those mid-tier free agents is much greater than it used to be. I think that's something they're going to have to look at. Whether they make a change during the CBA or they make the change down the road, I don't really think it was ever designed to kill the free agent market for these players. Remember, these systems have always been designed to lower the cost of free agents, but I don't think it was ever designed to freeze the market the way it has the last couple of years. So we'll see how the teams adapt, whether they give out fewer qualifying offers where player whether players are more likely to take qualifying offers in future seasons. But certainly the the three changes that were made to the draft rules and the compensation rules in the last CBA led to these unintended consequences. Anytime I hear about a package of rules changes or uh, changes in the way teams operate and it results in fewer free agents being signed, which has a tendency to depress salaries, I wonder whether the consequences are unintended. And I know you've also written about, uh, somewhat disparagingly, about the MLBPA maybe not being as aggressive as it used to be in trying to maintain uh, the op- the freest, most open market possible in order to keep salaries high. Talk about the the way that the MLBPA has adjusted over the last few years, presumably or seemingly against the interests of making players uh, get the most money. And secondly, what do you know about Tony Clark as a as the new leader of the MLBPA and how he's likely to pr- take that question into the future? Well, if you go back now 12 years to when uh, PEDs, steroids, whatever, sports drugs, whatever category you want to use here, became a large issue within baseball. Basically, the union's been split since then, and a union divided itself uh, against itself as a useless bargaining agreement. If you look at the last 10, 12 years now, the last three, four CBAs, MLB has made a lot of gains. If you just look at a basic number like the percentage of revenues that go to salaries, uh, that number continues to drop relative to about uh, 10, 12 years ago. And it's because you know in each CBA, MLB has done a better job of, of negotiating and negotiating against, frankly, a weak union. The union has been divided over this, this issue of drug testing and punishments and you know, banning the cheaters. And it, 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 but while this has been going on, MLB has just been chipping away and chipping away. So I actually don't think MLB management was smart enough I, I don't really think that highly of, of of them, to be honest with you, to say, okay, if we put this set of rules together, it's going to screw up the free agent market. I don't necessarily think that they, they planned what we've seen over the last couple of years, but I do know that when I look at revenues relative to uh, uh, salaries, when I look at teams basically punting payroll, when I look at you know things like the new draft rules, I, I all across the board I see things that I don't think would have happened under Marvin Miller, under Don Fear. Um, I think baseball, basically the players have gotten their butts kicked at the negotiating table, and they've done, they've done it largely because MLB has done a very good job of making, of positioning the players on their backs on the whole issue of drug testing. So whether, you know, baseball's free of drugs or not free of drugs or should have, you know, death penalty for, for positive tests, 
Well, that's been the focus. MLB has made up a ton of ground on money issues. And at the end of the day, I mean, really, that's that's what the focus needs to be on is the money issues. I think that a lot of this other stuff is bread and circuses, and you know, MLB just keeps making more and more money off the backs of the players. As far as Clark is concerned, I, I don't know a lot about him. And the one thing that I would say is this. In the history of labor relations between sports unions and leagues, there's a pretty bright dividing line between leagues that are run by labor lawyers and leagues that are run by players. And I think that is, you know, the, the, the track record of, of players' associations run by players isn't very strong. So we'll have to see what happens here. Um, I still think that the players, by and large, are not standing up and not recognizing just how much ground they've lost over the last 10 years relative to where they were. So we'll see if that comes up in the 2016 uh, uh, negotiation, whether it becomes more about these bucks issues than it has been about you know the drug issues for the last 10 years. If MLB continues to be able to turn the CBA negotiations into a referendum on MLB's drug program and on the cheating players, I think the players will continue to get beat at the negotiating table. Well, you said you don't necessarily believe that the uh, lords, as they were called, the lords of the realm in John Gellier's famous book, have the uh, smarts or the uh, ability to team up and figure out how to get foreseen consequences to look like unforeseen consequences. Well, Patrick, let, 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 let me clarify. I don't think they were smart enough to recognize that if we make these three rules changes four years ago, we're going to completely hose, we're going to turn Nelson Cruz into a one-year, $8 million player. I do think and that, that after a decade of doing this, MLB's upper management, Seelig and Rob Manfred, guys like that, recognize that the drug issue has been a hammer for them. I absolutely think they recognize that they have the upper hand now, and they have the upper hand because they've been able to turn the perception of these players into these greedy, cheating ball players, And they've been able to use that time and time again. And, and they also recognize that it's split the union. So I absolutely think that the, the MLB's upper management knows that by elevating the drug issue 10 years ago, they were able to split the union, and by splitting the union, they've been able to, to claw back all of these gains. And you mentioned that you think that the uh, players are not quite aware, but they sh- certainly somebody's got to have pointed out to them by now that they used to get more than 50% of the revenue. Now the, they're getting like 45 or 44 or whatever it is, and the revenue pie is getting mighty big, and that maybe if they were a bit more militant, they'd get a bigger chunk of it. I don't know if that's actually. I don't know if that conversation has happened. Um, I do know that most of the time we hear about we hear from players, it's about the drug issue. They don't seem to be focused on the dollar issues. You said in your newsletter that you wouldn't have signed Craig Kimbrell to a four-year, forty-two million dollar extension, but that you also think the Braves created an opportunity for themselves by making the deal. So, a two-part question for you: First, why don't you think it's a good deal? And second of all, what is the opportunity you think the Braves created? I wouldn't sign any reliever to a four-year deal. The variance involved in reliever performance is just too great. In particular, the category of reliever to which Kimbrell belongs, those guys tend to burn fast and hot. If you look at the hyper-strikeout relievers, Dibble, Marmol, if you look at basically the highest strikeout relievers in baseball history, they burn fast and hot. Either they get hurt or they lose their command and, 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 they, and they, they fall apart. I think the Braves have given away a lot of the value they had in having Craig Kimbrell at $500,000 a year for the last three years by signing him to this four-year deal. I would have gone year-to-year in arbitration knowing that you know, if he happens to be the unicorn who's good for seven straight years, that's great, and, and you end up paying for that. Maybe you eventually trade him. But 
I think the chance that, you know, four for 42 ends up blowing up is, is way too high, given the track record of relievers of this particular type. I will say this. You know, it, you've, now, you've now divorced Craig Kimbrell's income from his save totals. There's some incentives in the contract. You can, you, you can literally just rewrite the incentives. So you have the opportunity now to use Craig Kimbrell in a more optimal fashion without taking money out of his pocket. Craig Kimbrell inherited three runners all of last year. He inherited just, I believe, I believe it was one runner in scoring position the entire year. This is the greatest strikeout pitcher in the game. You want him pitching with a runner on third and less than two outs, and they never use him in this fashion. If the Braves take this opportunity to say, hey, Craig, we need to use you when a strikeout is the most highest lever- the high- at its highest leverage, the Braves will get more out of this. If they keep bringing him in to face the six, seven, and eight hitters with a three-run, in- a three-run lead in the ninth, they're just wasting him. The Braves are a pretty smart organization, but and other smart organizations probably know this in theory, that they should be putting their best relievers into the highest leverage situations, and yet nobody does it. Nobody does it. Do you think the Braves might actually do it? Oh, no. They're, they're actually a very traditional organization. I think if you were to scale you know, 1 to 30, I think the Braves are probably in the bottom five in terms of being a traditional organization. I think they signed Kimbrell because they think he has some kind of magic fairy dust in the ninth inning. Uh, and that's, you know, this is, as I said all along, the idea that the, that the last three outs are somehow special is an idea that was invented about 25 years ago. If you had told pitchers in the 1970s that the last three outs are special, they would have laughed. We've invented this idea, and we've taught this to the generation of pitchers and, in fact, the generation of managers. It can be untaught. It's not like, you know, three outs to an inning or, or four bases to the diamond. You know, the idea of the last three outs being somehow magic is a completely new invention, and it really is something we've got to get away from. Certainly would have surprised Mike Marshall and uh, some of those old-timey guys. Uh, you, the common wisdom or the conventional wisdom that we see about the willingness of teams to sign young, youngish players to these long extensions is by buying out their ARB years and by buying out some of their free agent years, they're, they're doing well financially because they're sharing the risk with the players. Is it possible, Joe, though, that the baseball teams see a whole bunch of money coming down the pike and they're trying to lock players up ahead of time so that the player can't come in and say, you know, you've increased your revenue by 100%. I want more than what you're giving me. And what's the ceiling for Mike Trout if he becomes a free agent after the big money rolls in? Kind of take it back a step. Teams have been, as revenues have grown, this is how teams have chosen to, to use it, by locking up your Joe Mowers and your Andrew McCutcheons and your Evan Longorians. This is how teams are leveraging the increase in revenue growth. So it's, it's already happened. And teams know that you know, they're better off signing their guys <clears throat> because they're going to make a better deal signing their own guys than they are when that player becomes a free agent. You know, we saw this with the Yankees at Robinson Cano. Probably at some point in the last two or three years, they could have signed Cano to an eight-year, $165 billion deal. Once he hit the market, it was 10 and, one, 10 and 240. The Dodgers, 7 and, was it, 212, 213, whatever, for, for Clayton Kershaw. If they let Clayton Kershaw hit the market, it was going to be 10 and 300. You mentioned Trout. I, I think we have to be careful here only because for two reasons one just because not all players continue to improve until they're 27 you know it is possible that mike trout's had the two best years of his career 
and he'll have, he'll be a great player, but he'll never quite be what he was at 20 and 21 again. The second thing is projecting any player out four years is risky. I think we're all assuming that if Mike Trout's a free agent, he's going to make, you know, he's going to get 12 and 500 or whatever crazy numbers you want to come up with. And you know something that is possible. But I have no idea sitting here right now what Mike Trout's performance in 2000, uh, I can do math, 2017, 2018, 2018 being his walk year. I don't know what he's going to hit that year. Um, so, and, and things Trout doesn't either. And he's got more at risk here. If Mike Trout steps into a drainage ditch, a la Mickey Mantle, he could be leaving $200 million on the table or even more. That's why this kind of contract, this potential four-year, however much, you know, six-year, seven-year deal is appealing to him because he's got a lot more at risk than the Angels do. Uh, I just think we should tap the brakes on, oh, my God, Mike Trout's going to make a billion dollars in free agency. I think we just don't know what's going to happen to the player over the, last, over the next four years. And it's, it's always easy to think that a player is going to keep performing the way he's performing at the moment. And we've got 130 years of baseball history that says it doesn't always work out that way. One more thing about the Joe Sheehan uh, newsletter I wanted to bring up. You had a column, I think it was in the middle of February or so, and you wrote about your affection for Henderson Alvarez, which I share. And I agree that there's a lot to like, but in particular, Joe, what do you see when you look at this uh, Miami right-hander who really hasn't been that great a pitcher so far, notwithstanding his uh, no-hitter, which uh, which was a fairly comical effort all the way around? Well, I mean, there's there's the velocity, the raw velocity. I mean, he was seventh among, pitcher, among, among pitchers uh, with 100 for somebody who throws his fastball exclusively, he throws 93. That was like 7th out of 25. Actually, Nathan Eovaldi, who's uh, also with the Marlins, uh, was up there. You've got Garrett Cole in that group. And it's it's a Chen Ming Wong type of fastball. It's not the way Cole just blows it by hitters. It's, it's a, it is a sinking fastball that he throws for strikes that generates a ton of ground balls. He throws that sinking fastball more than half the time. It's actually like saying Wong is the guy I keep coming back to. And Chiming Wong at his peak was a legitimate number two starter for a couple of years. <clears throat> you know, he had some injury issues that actually had nothing to do with his pitching, and everything kind of fell apart there. Um, I think the one thing I'm looking for Henderson this year to, to do is improve the command. Uh, he's really, if you're going to be this type of pitcher where you're going to throw strikes and pitch to contact, you're going to have to keep from walking guys, and that's incredibly important. So he just has, and he also has like polished skills. Um, for a young right-handed pitcher, he just eliminates the running game. He, uh, I'm actually, I'm sorry, I'm damping a little bit as, as I talk to you because I want to pull up the stat, but he's only allowed seven stolen base attempts in his career. It's not that he's allowing very few base runners on first base because he pretty much only gives up singles and walks, but when he gets, he just, guys cannot run on him. So when you have a pitcher who controls the running game and throws ground balls, that's going to open him up to getting a lot of double plays. So I just see a pitcher who's got velocity. He's got a, a tendency to throw ground balls. He holds the uh, runners on. He's a big guy. I think he's going to be able to hold up over a workload. Just a lot of things to like about him. And, you know, I, I'm well ahead of, you know, I, I love Henderson Alvarez. I'm sure he's going to get bid up on him in every league that, that I have. Because people know there were some jokes Jeff Erickson made a joke on Twitter. Paul Sparrow made a joke on Twitter. Uh, people know that I like him, and I. But I, I really think he's somebody to go out there this year, throw 200 innings with an ERA of about 3.3, a good ratio. And you know, if, if the Marlins can score some more runs this year, maybe even win 12, 15 games. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, we always ask our expert guests in preseason for some studs and duds they're looking at for this year. And let's start with some studs. Uh, how about an American League hitter you think is going to overperform and be a bargain? You know, he was the number one prospect in the game a year ago, so maybe he doesn't fit. But, you know, last year he got jerked around a lot. And this year, Jerickson Profar is going to be the, the Rangers' second baseman. I think the concerns about his shoulder will pass. He's going to play every day. And this is a guy who can flat-out hit. One other thing to watch for, in some leagues that, uh, that use a lower threshold, they'll actually be eligible at shortstop. He had uh, 18 games at shortstop last year. So if your threshold is 10 or 15 games, it's actually shortstop eligible. So you can get all of this hitting performance and as a shortstop. I love Profar to break out this year. How about in the National League, a hitter you think is going to be a, a real bargain? I swear to God, you're going to laugh when I say this. B.J. Upton can't possibly be as bad as he was last year. <laughs> and everybody's going to run away from him because he hit a buck 80, and he was a huge free agent bust. But the raw skills of the guy who drew walks and hit for power and stole bases in Tampa are all still there. And Upton is still just 29 years old. I think that, you know, you, everybody's going to focus on the batting average last year. I think the batting average just bounce, bounces back to the 240, 250 level he typically hits. And he ends up, again, being a 2020 guy, maybe even a 25, 25 guy. So I, would, I think Upton's going to be a sleeper. How about an American League pitcher who's going to be a stud, a guy you got your eye on? I don't know if a stud is the word, um, but particularly because the helixin injury opens up the opportunity for him. I think Jake Odorizzi is ready to pitch in the major leagues. You know, we've seen each year the Rays. It was three years ago it was Helixson, two years ago it was Cobb, last year it was Chris Archer. They've had one guy come along every single year and end up being like a mid-rotation starter. I think Odorizzi is, is ready to pitch in the major leagues right now. He's going to pitch, obviously, in front of that tremendous defense that they put on the field. It's a good park for him. I wouldn't worry about the division so much. I think that Jake Odorizzi steps up this year and is a bargain for a lot of teams in the draft. And a really good uh, defensive positioning team, as we talked about earlier. They they kind of are on the forefront of that whole uh, area of uh, helping pitchers by putting their defensive players in the best possible positions. How about in the National League, a pitcher who's going to be a stud, a, a guy you really want to get? Well, we, we went over Henderson Alvarez. Henderson Alvarez is the guy I'm, I'm really looking to target. And another pitcher in that same rotation, Nathan Eovaldi. You know, he threw 96 last year with the fastball. I, I have some issues with their defense is an open question. They could go with a very good defensive team, or they could go with a team where they try to get some more offense on the field. We'll see who ends up in center field for them. We'll see who wins the second base job. But, you know, the left side of that infield with Matt Dominguez and Ed Dominguez, one of the better ones in the game. So, Neovaldi should get good support as well. So, I think that Marlins staff in general is going to be the source of some bargains. And now, Joe, let's go to your duds. These are players you think are going to be overvalued, players to nominate or players to avoid. We'll start again in the American League with a hitter you want to not have any part of. Uh, Ian Kinsler. And I know that everybody's picking on Ian Kinsler this week uh, after the ESPN the Magazine story. But, you know, you look at the core skills, and he's really starting to fall apart. And the bigger issue is that outside of, outside of uh, America, whatever they call that park in Texas now, uh, He's just not that been, been a very good player. He's been a 399 career slugging outside of that ballpark. I think you take an aging second baseman with a lot of mileage on him, whose skills are beginning to deteriorate, and put him in a pitcher's park. I mean, he, he could really fall apart this year. I want no part of Ian Kinsler. And on the National League side, a hitter that you are equally uh, pessimistic about? Uh, the Mets spent a lot of money on Curtis Granderson, and I don't think it's going to work out. Granderson's you know up there in age. 
he's a three true outcomes guy going to a park. You know, he's leaving a park that was actually perfect for his skill set in Yankee Stadium, going to a park that even after the renovations isn't really going to work very well for him. I think the speed's pretty much gone. I think Grandison's going to be one of the more the it, forget from a fantasy standpoint, I think it's going to be one of the more disastrous free agent signings of the winter. Moving to the pitchers, how about an American League pitcher you're pretty confident is going to be overpriced and uh, somebody to avoid? Masahiro Tanaka. Uh, I Obviously, the Darvish experience has kind of made us feel really good about Japanese starters coming over, but I look at Tanaka as somebody who's not overpowering. He's going to have to really make sure he gets ahead in the count to make that splitter work and miss bats. If he's one oh two oh three one a lot, he's going to struggle. And in that ballpark, and I mentioned Granderson leaving it, you know, if he, if he turns out to be a fly ball right-hander in that park, he could have a lot of problems. I'm not saying he's going to be Philip Hughes in that park, but I, if he, I think his ERA is going to be above four, and that's going to be disappointing to 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 a lot of fantasy players who draft him high or end up paying fifteen twenty bucks for his performance. And finally, a National League pitcher, same situation. You don't want any uh, part of this guy who's going to be overpriced. Francisco Liriano was a great story last year. So much of his success was based on one particular skill, shutting down left-handed batters. Um, he had the best left-on-left performance of any, any starting pitcher in going back for all the years we have records. Uh, but against right-handers, he wasn't that effective. You know, he really struggled with the command, uh, you know, gave up a decent... His, his line against right-handers wasn't all that impressive. I think that a combination of not being quite as effective against lefties this year and teams loading up right-handers against him, he's going to take a big drop-off this year. And let's not forget, too, Liriano has never been healthy and effective in consecutive years. So I look for a big fall-off out of Liriano. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Avitt with Joe Sheehan. And Joe, uh, give our listeners the lowdown on the newsletter, where they can sign up, what the deal is, uh, how often it comes out, all those details. Uh, the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, I'm actually just starting the sixth year of running it. Uh, you can get information on it at joesheehan.com or joesheehanbaseball.blogspot.com. That latter site is where I run a lot of excerpts and free material. The newsletter is twenty nine ninety five for for twelve months, sixteen ninety five for six months. You can pay me through credit card via PayPal. It comes in your inbox. There's no password. There's no uh, going to a website. You sign up. I add you to the distribution list, and you get the newsletter. Typically, I write three to five days a week. Uh, there's no set schedule. I'll do different things. I'll write about you know things I've seen in a box score, things games that I'm watching, uh, issue type stuff. Particularly in the run up towards uh, the start of the season, there'll be a lot more material as we start to preview the upcoming season and do some predictions and projections. Obviously, I don't focus on fantasy. There'll be some fantasy content as I do my own drafts and talk about some players that I like. But really, it's it's not sabermetric. It's not fantasy. It's kind of a catch-all. If you're a baseball fan, if you enjoy watching the game, if you in, if you enjoy Baseball HQ, I think you get it. You'd enjoy the newsletter. So check out the Blogspot site. Uh, you can get free, some of the free material there. You can also follow me on Twitter for an idea of kind of the, uh, the content that I do. That's at Joe underscore Sheehan. The underscore is important. There's a very nice man in St. Louis who ends up getting followed by baseball fans, and they're confused why he doesn't tweet about baseball more. So, um, But like I say, those are the places you can catch me. Also, I do a lot of radio. I do Sirius XM. I do NBC Network. So uh, you can just you know, follow the Twitter account. You can find out what I'm going to be on radio uh, all around the country. And, and you, uh, and, uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I also write for a small regional magazine called Sports Illustrated. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. And uh, before I let you go, Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Who are the World Series teams and who's going to win the world champion of 2014? 
you know, obviously when you get to the postseason, anything can happen. But I think the, the best team in each league right now is the Cardinals are the best team in baseball as far as I'm concerned. And then either the Rangers or the Red Sox and, or the Rays. I mean, those three teams are right at the top of the American League. So I'm going to say this is the year the Rays break through and the Cardinals beat the Rays in the World Series. Interesting takes, Joe Sheehan. Thanks very much for doing this. Let me add, uh, you said that the uh, Joe Sheehan newsletter is not aimed at fantasy players, and that's true, but I play fantasy baseball pretty intensely, and I wouldn't be without the Joe Sheehan newsletter. So thanks for putting it out, and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Check him out. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here is the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecast for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com for these features. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Stephen Nickrand looks at starting pitchers to avoid in his annual Gambles column in the Starting Pitchers Buyer's Guide. Fantasy Sports Writer Association Award winner David Martin continues his head-to-head consistency series with some Lima pitching targets. And Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide looks at some shaky investments in the top 100 batters. Plus, we have all our regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, and more. It's fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute, and leading off, the Metric Minute. Telling us about base performance value for pitchers, here's Analyst Ryan Bloomfield. In this week's Metric Minute, we'll take a look at base performance value, or, or BPV, which you'll hear often here on Baseball HQ Radio. We'll look at BPV for pitchers. Uh, what BPV is, it's a single composite value that measures the overall skill of a pitcher. It incorporates a combination of your dominance, which is your strikeouts per nine, your control, which is your walk rate or walks per nine, and the ability to produce ground balls into a single number. The, the average BPV across baseball last year was 77 your relievers typically have higher BPVs than starters. So when you're targeting closers, you want to look for guys with BPVs over 100. Uh, for the starting pitchers, you typically want to target guys with 70 and above. And starters with BPVs over 90 should definitely be coveted. Uh, BPV is one of the most important metrics. It's heavily correlated to overall success. Uh, most importantly, it's used to identify future breakout targets as well as performances that may or may not be repeatable from the past. A couple examples from last year that could help you in 2014. Uh, Cole Hamels, his one guy, had a fantastic 115 BPV, which is elite for starters. Only had eight wins, a 360 ERA, which isn't too bad, but that was his worst since 2009. So look for that even to go down given Hamels' skills. Uh, Jeff Samarja is another guy. Had a 100 BPV, only a 434 ERA. Look for that to go down. 
On the flip side, Travis Wood, he had a great 2013, a 3.11 ERA on the surface, uh, but his 47 BPV was one of the worst for starters with over 150 innings last year. Uh, he's widely reviewed as a regression candidate. Uh, so take a look at the BPV column when evaluating your pitchers for 2014. Again, it's a great way to judge the overall skill for a pitcher and then use that to compare that with your results on the surface. Next week, we'll still stick with BPV. We'll take a look at BPV for hitters and how to apply that for your draft prep. For now, for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes for BaseballHQ.com and talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Dodgers second base prospect Alex Guerrero, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. It'll be interesting to see what the Los Angeles Dodgers do with Cuban-born infielder Alex Guerrero this spring. The 27-year-old Guerrero agreed to a four-year, $32 million deal in the offseason and is competing with D. Gordon for a spot in the Dodgers' opening day lineup. Guerrero played mostly shortstop in Cuba, but has moved over to second base, where he has a strong arm and good footwork, but is really still learning the position, including the pivot from the second base side of the bag. At the plate, he can be a bit stiff, but has a good approach, good bat speed, and plus raw power that should translate into 20-plus home run potential once he reaches the majors. His hit tool needs the most work, and there is likely to be an adjustment period, though he has shown good patience this spring. Guerrero is not likely to be a stolen base threat, though he runs slightly above average and has good instincts on the bases. Guerrero's had a solid spring, including an impressive grand slam off of Jeff Francis last week, but he will most likely be sent down to the minors to get regular playing time. If that happens and you can stash Guerrero away, he makes an excellent endgame target in NL-only formats. Over the course of the season, it's not hard to envision a scenario where Guerrero outproduces D. Gordon and earns double-digit value. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garapi, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. This week, Rob Gordon also looks at top shortstop prospects. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 15 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday edition. It's Joe Sheehan, the author of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, always provocative and insightful. He's a great guest for the show, and please do check out the newsletter because you'll really enjoy it. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator, and Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon brought us the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Also, you can feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with a news and notes show featuring League Watch news reports, Todd Zola, and Master Notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be the founder of BaseballHQ.com, Ron Chandler, on the next Tuesday Experts edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.